Trace, run! Trace does not need telling twice. She's up and sprinting along the rafter before Crater has even got to his feet, demonstrating a sureness of foot the big man doubts he could emulate even on his best day. And after the night of the dust he had last night, today is definitely not his best. The heavy warehouse doors crash open, and a disreputable-looking mob of thugs, cutthroats and lowlives come spilling in, tooled up and ready to inflict pain. Crater stands high above them all, his feet planted wide on the narrow rafter. To his credit, he barely wobbles as he takes a half-smoked cigar from an inside pocket and lights it. He addresses the murderous mob spread out below him with an easy grin. Evening, miss. Fellas, nice night for it. As the crowd gaze incredulously up at him, he pulls a heavy pouch from his belt and holds it up. Brought you a little present he says, as the fuse, poking out of the pouch, ignites on his lit cigar. Hope you ladies and gents brought your running boots. And then the bomb is falling. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. The spider set three daring plans in motion intending to disrupt the machinations of their foes. But in each case, serious complications were encountered before those plans had barely even begun. Trace and Crater had headed to the docks on the trail of the Infernal Powder, intended for a battle fleet assembling below the continent of conflict. They found no powder, but they did find one of the Unseen, engaged in identity theft. The Spider and Sallow, intending to recover Dr. Crop, had headed into the Mercer's Quarter, a district that has descended into a total war zone in the aftermath of the Mustang's crash landing. And Tatters, backed by Valerian and intent upon kidnapping Nina, teleported into the Tereth Montessario wedding, only for her demon patron to betray her and leave her stranded at the altar. The bomb tumbles slowly over and over as it drops towards the scattering pack, and Crater is off, stumbling his way along the rafter and towards the jimmied skylight the trace has vanished through. He almost doesn't make it. The explosion, when it comes, Damnip picks him up and hurls him straight out of the skylight. It's a miracle that the shrapnel that peppers the back of his greatcoat and that breaks the rest of the warehouse does him no serious injury. Crater clambers to his feet on the warehouse roof, his head ringing. 
Move it, you lumbering ox! Tracer's positioned herself behind a tall chimney stack on the next building and unstrapped the bow from her back. An arrow is trained unerringly on the skylight behind the crater. The big man takes a running jump and leaps over to the next roof, arms and legs flailing as he flies over a 50-foot drop. The landing blasts the breath from his lungs and leaves him teetering on the edge. Behind him, a head emerges from the skylight, the thug's face soot-stained and hair still smouldering from the explosion. Trace's arrow punches into his cheek and he drops with a shriek. Come on, she snarls. I think we've outstayed our welcome. Crater follows her lead, sprinting down the far side of the next warehouse roof, then leaping over to the next. There is a ferocious grin on his face as he does so. This sort of night flight over the roofs of the docks, the sound of pursuit behind him, takes him straight back to his youth. He pauses as they reach the roof of the Silco Brickworks, and a sudden memory turns his grin to a laugh. You go on, Trace. It's cover. Over by those stacks. I've got a little surprise for our friends back there. He doubles back, crouching low as he moves along the crenellations of the roof's edge, then takes up a position at the hip of a gully, listening intently. He counts three pursuers close on his heels, who pass his hiding spot and reach the gully end, staring down in confusion into the courtyard below. Where'd they go? They can't have jumped down that far. And just like he did fifteen years ago, to those crowboys trying to make a name for themselves on his turf, Greta slips out of the shadows behind them, and then with a blood-curdling roar, bull rushes the three of them clean off the roof. They tumble, screaming, and hit the cobbles of the courtyard in terrible finality. There are more behind him, of course. He and Trace lead them a merry dance over the next fifteen minutes or so, fading and picking them off one by one. With Crater's intimate knowledge of the rooftops and the rat runs, they are able to lose their last few pursuers and take a moment to catch their breath, perched atop a warehouse overlooking the trade ships at the city's edge. Trace is scowling, but Crater hasn't felt so alive in years. Go on, Trace. What a long face. That was a blast. The scout frowns back at him. We're not here for fun, you lubbocks. Our mission is to track down the powder supply lines, and all we've done is found an empty warehouse and announced our involvement to the unseen. We're still no closer to... Whatever she is about to say is cut off by a commotion below. A gang of dockers on the move, weapons glinting in the moonlight. Another group emerge from the far end of the docks, torches lit, and everyone freezes. For a suspended moment, the scene is oddly peaceful. And then the two gangs fall upon one another in an orgy of bloodletting. More figures spill out onto the docks, and then more, now lit orange by the flames licking up the sides of several warehouses. And just like that, the docks are at war. Before I talk about that chase, I just wanted to circle back to the last episode and talk about those brain-eating shape-changers. This trope is a familiar one in fantasy role-playing. That MO pretty closely matches the ability of the greater doppelganger in D&D, for example. Mindflayers have a very similar brain-sucking ability, but the trope is common in other fiction and even has possible roots, albeit contested ones, in both history and modern science. In the John Carpenter classic, The Thing, when the creature consumes a human being and converts it into a thing, 
it has all the memories of the original person. The brain bugs in Starship Troopers can also eat brains of humans and gain their knowledge by doing so, allowing them to set traps for humans using their own protocols. There are examples of memory consumption in Doctor Who, Star Trek, Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, and countless others. It's possible that this trope is actually an echo of our own dark past, a sort of cultural memory of ancient tribal cannibalistic practices, where it was believed that the courage or the energy of a warrior's defeated enemy could be absorbed by eating their flesh. In Alan Moore's Swamp Thing comic, he revealed that the eponymous monster was not, in fact, the biologist Alec Holland, transformed into a plant creature by an explosion and a bio-organic formula. Holland, it turned out, had actually died instantly in the explosion, but the swamp, affected by the residual traces of the serum in his system, ate Holland's remains and absorbed his memories and personality, then reconstituted him as a living plant that thought it was Alec Holland. The story in which this is revealed directly references the controversial Planarian Worm Study by Professor James McConnell. In the 1960s, Professor McConnell suggested that memories were stored as RNA proteins in a code like DNA distributed throughout our bodies. He tested this theory in a controversial and, frankly, slightly bonkers experiment. He trained flapworms to respond physically to light, and then he cut off their heads and waited a month for them to grow, and then he retested. And the worms demonstrated the trained behaviour. Then he cut the worms into thirds and their quarters, and still the segments, when regrown, retained the memory of the task. Then he bred another set of worms and trained them, and killed them, and then ground them up, and fed their remains to a new set of untrained worms. And these new worms gained the memory of the task. Memory transfer through RNA. Memories stored within the chemical building blocks of the body, rather than as ephemeral electrical impulses in the brain. It's fair to say that the findings are hotly contested, but even so, it is a wonderful little glimpse into an area of science that is only just beginning to deliver up its secrets. And in a more abstract sense, all this is sort of like what we humans have been doing since the birth of language, absorbing the knowledge of those that came before us, consuming their stories and lessons, and then passing those on in turn to the next generation and the next down through history. It's what every form of communication does, down to, and including, this podcast. Talking of this podcast, we do seem to have drifted a little bit off topic. Let's briefly turn to that chase scene. Given the fictional position, I decided my team were going to run, and so I set up a racing clock with two six-segment clocks, escape and cornered. And then it was just a series of action rolls preceded and succeeded by imagining the fiction. We had a finesse, wreck, hunt and group prowl roll. The escape clock filled up and the team were free. But that last prowl roll came with a consequence. The position worsened, from risky down to desperate. Why? Well, the oracle told me that peace had gone up in flames. In the context of a volatile city on the brink of civil war, that could only mean one thing. We were past that brink. Talking of war zones, let's check in on Sallow 
and the spider. The spider doesn't like it, but she knows they're going to have to take the chance. If they don't find the doctor and get out of here fast, it's only a matter of time before they're discovered, or just randomly caught in the crossfire. Come on, she whispers to Sallow, we need to get moving. We need to get to the doctor's shop. Sallow shrugs, if it's still standing. He's looking twitchy, and it's pretty obvious why. It's hard to believe that the affluent, bustling Mercer's Quarter has been reduced to a war zone in under 24 hours, but the death and destruction all around them tells its own story. Looted shops, ruined and burned out buildings, the bodies of the dead left where they'd fallen. Countless fires still burn, and amidst the carnage, the combatants fight on with bow and magic and blade. It's hard to tell how many factions are involved at this point, but none of them seem to show any signs of backing down. If anything, the fighting is intensifying. Regardless, Sallow pulls out his map and traces a route. If we head down Vermilion Avenue, I guess we can cut through one of the connecting alleys. This way. The spider nods and follows. She has the map completely memorised, of course. She knows at least three different routes they could take from here, but she also knows Sallow well. It's important to keep him occupied under stress, otherwise that brilliant, idiosyncratic mind of his can start to whir off in unpredictable directions. Keeping to the shadows, they make their way down Vermilion Avenue, or what's left of it. Rubble chokes the streets, and the sounds of fighting seem to be drawing closer. A streak of arcane energy briefly lights up the sky to the north, blasting into the base of a slender rooftop spire and sending it tumbling to the streets below with an almighty crash. From the east come the sounds of battle cries and death screams and the ring of steel. Coming our way, spider, Sallow mutters, and he's not wrong. A major skirmish from the sound of things and approaching fast. We're going to need some cover, Sallow. If we can make it to the turning into Cutter Alley without being seen, we should be able to avoid them. Can you lay down smoke? The saboteur nods, tugging two fist-sized steel balls from one of his crossed bandoliers and rolling them across the cobbles with a precision born of years of practice. Little fluffy clouds, he grins, and in an instant the street fills with smoke. And just in time... The combatants rout the corner in the same moment, suddenly blinded, their confusion and disorientation evident from their angry shouting. The pair duck into Cutter Alley, stepping over several bodies as they pick their way to the far end. They peer out into Tinker's Row, ready for anything but the sight that greets them. There, across the street, is Dr. Crop's alchemical emporium. The shop sign is hanging from only one support, and a window is smashed but by and large the little shop seems remarkably intact. The same cannot be said for the dead outside. The remains of perhaps a score of what were presumably humans at some point are spread in a scarlet semicircular smear amidst scorch marks and blackened rubble. The epicentre of this violent eruption appears to have been the shop itself, although the building seems to bear no signs of damage. Sallow's face lights up, Ooh, countermeasures. I wonder how they work. The spider sighs. We're going to need to find out, Sallow dear, and hopefully in a manner that doesn't involve us getting blasted into paste. Because, one way or another, we need to get inside that shop. 
in an uncharacteristic attempt to play against type, I'm going to keep this brief. This scene was very simple. I set up a danger clock called Discovery, and then I made action rolls that seemed to fit the fiction. So Salo made a study roll, assisted by the spider, and then he made a tinker roll to lay down the smokescreen using one of the items listed on his character sheet. I decided that four marks on my progress clock, recover the doctor and return with him to the HQ, was enough for them to reach the shop, and so I asked a simple question. Is the shop still standing? Yes, said the oracle, but an explosion has killed many. It seemed most logical to me that the alchemical master had some sort of defensive measures in place, and so the fiction kind of wrote itself. Just to circle back for a moment, I wanted to mention the assist that Spider gave to Sallow. Typically, the assist mechanic assumes another party member actively contributing, but in this case, the spider actually assisted by passing the task to Sallow and not contributing herself. This slight subverting of the assist mechanic worked in the fiction, I think, and from a more meta perspective, it offered something a bit more important, an opportunity for character development. That mechanical plus one dice was turned in the fiction into an insight into both PCs. How Sallow is fragile and can keep on mission by keeping focused on tasks, and how the spider, the mastermind of the group, is resourceful, aware of her team's strengths and weaknesses, possessed of a degree of emotional intelligence. Okay, I said I'd keep this brief, so let's wrap it up and see how Tatters is faring. The Montessario woman packs a mean punch. By the time Tatter's head's cleared, she is surrounded, grappled at the ground and manacled. An armoured soldier, likely a captain by his livery, has a heavy knee in the small of her back and a gauntleted fist grinding her head into the marble floor. She grunts in pain, trying to look up, trying to get a word out, but she can hardly breathe. She's failed, and there's no getting out of it. Her only hope is that Valerian can pull something out of his ass but it's a damn thin hope. More likely by far that that self-serving clown will be more focused on finding himself the nearest exit. Valerian seriously considers cutting and running. Tatus is down, and surrounded by heavily armed guards, there is no getting her out of that. And anything he tries to do at this point is surely only going to bring the same fate down on him. He's not quite sure what keeps him from bailing. Perhaps it's the rawness of the memory of what happened to Trace. Perhaps it's the prospect of returning to the spider with the mission failed and another crew member lost. Whatever it is, it causes him to throw caution to the wind and make a truly desperate, crazy gamble. He's going to tell the truth. Mina Montessario! He bellows over the din of the anxious crowd, and their eyes meet, hers going wide in the moment of recognition. He ploughs on before she has a chance to order him clapped in irons, and before he has a chance to think better of this truly foolhardy course of action. I know you have little reason to trust me, Miss Montessario, but I throw myself on that trust regardless. You know we share a common enemy, an unseen force manipulating events from behind the scenes. My team and I have learned that this union of houses is of their design and must be stopped. He points at Tatters, still buried under several hundred pounds of grizzled soldiery. 
that woman is my ally. Lacking the time or the means to contact you directly, we took the only course open to us and attempted to extricate you. That plan has failed, and so now I appeal to you directly. Stop this wedding, I beg you! A widening circle has opened up around Valerian as he speaks. The wedding guests move as quickly as decorum permits, away from what seems highly likely to soon become the site of a great deal of violence. Guards are closing in from all sides, pushing their way through the crush of the crowd. Valerian, holding Mina's gaze, is suddenly aware he stands at a fulcrum point. That his fate, indeed the fate of countless thousands, depend upon what happens in the next few seconds. The Duke of Tereth, finally recovered from his shock, seems about to cry out, but Mina places a hand on his arm. Wait, she says. And that's where the screams begin. First one guest, then another, doubles over, clutching at their stomachs, shrieking in agony as they fall to their knees. More and more follow, vomiting up red wine laced with what looks like some sort of black, tar-like substance. Then skin begins to darken and mottle, black veins spreading up the arms and the necks of some of the most powerful people in the Empire. Their cries of pain are matched with screams of panic, as those in the crowd unaffected, already spooked by the kidnapped attempt and the madman's spouting conspiracy theories, stampede as one for the exits, only to find them barred. It's the wine, Valerian realises, with a rising sense of dread. The welcome glass of wine offered to the guests as they arrived. Somehow, the cult of the machine must have spiked those barrels of Chateau Rogoff Croncru that he saw out in the reception hall. Spiked them with that foul machine oil. And now, half the cream of Kairos High Society are trapped in here and on their knees, minutes away from an agonising death. Or, perhaps worse yet, on the verge of succumbing to the horror that befell Flint. And there's not a damn thing he can do to stop it. Well, I didn't see that coming. My virtual GM handed me a proper bait-and-switch there. For the moment that the voice of the machine instructed Mina to help them sneak into the wedding... My assumption had been that the cult intended to blow the whole place sky-high. And later, in Chapter 20 of Season 1, we learned of barrels of posh wine brought into the event by cultists posing as caterers. Now Mina and I assumed those barrels contained infernal powder, and so Mina's plan to neutralise the powder by having priests cast blessings on them made perfect sense. But then I hit a huge curveball. Valerian made his desperate bid to get Mina inside, throwing caution to the wind. And I really mean throwing caution to the wind. In addition to pushing that role, Valerian took a devil's bargain. And the devil's bargain oracle gave me a pretty logical price. His move was going to bring down another three heat on his crew. And so I gathered my dice for limited effect and from a desperate position, rolled and got a success. But naturally, it wasn't going to be that easy, because I also got a consequence. And whatever that consequence was, because of the desperate position, it was going to be significant. And so I rolled on my consequent oracle and got 
a new obstacle or threat appears, and then I rolled on the picture oracle and got a kneeling man and an Anubis head. Now, that Anubis head has cropped up once before, back when Valerian and crew were queuing at the Machine Cult security checkpoint. Back then, I decided it meant Wayer of Souls. And by reusing that interpretation here, and combining it with an image that strongly reminded me of the last time we saw Flint gradually being transformed into a creature of living metal, well, I had a clear idea of what that threat was. The wedding wine had been spiked. My initial reaction was frustration. That was actually a really cool idea, but obviously I couldn't use it. Surely it contradicted the established fiction, didn't it? And then I went back through the previous chapters and discovered, to my surprise, that my assumption about the infernal powder was exactly that. At no point had the powder been seen by anyone, or in fact even mentioned by the cult. Just barrels marked as containing wine. Mina and I had jumped to a conclusion and then laid plans to address the assumption we'd made, and we were now both completely wrong-footed by the cultists' actual plan. Maybe those cultists aren't so stupid after all. A quick side note on a property of the picture oracle from Alone in the Dark that I hadn't really considered when I first started using it, but which in hindsight now seems pretty obvious. The more you use the tool, the more you start to re-roll symbols. Not often, there are 216 images after all, but often enough, and increasingly so, the longer you play. The same happens with the words on Mythic, of course, but I think there is a difference with the pictures. My tendency with them is to remember the context and meaning from the last time it was rolled, and to see if it can be applied in the same way again. Now that can be really useful. In a similar way to Mythic's plot thread and NPC lists coming into play from time to time, particular images reappearing can serve as ways of creating story cohesion, bringing previous people or places or concepts back into play. And so it has proved here, in a very unexpected way. Will the machine oil kill or convert half of the city's elite? What does the cult's bombshell mean for the Unseen's plans? And how can Valerian and Tatters possibly extricate themselves from this god-awful mess? I hope you'll join me next time to find out. been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. 
Satan story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.